You are listening to a Laison Lumineer podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineer. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Many familiar faces. Many of you have been through the marathon of the various presentations we've had and openings since last Wednesday. Most of you know that I am Sandra Hindman, the owner of this gallery, and this is Benjamin Zucker, the collector whose beautiful diamonds are on exhibit in this gallery. And tonight's little presentation, which we'll also do as a little bit of a Q&A, and then there will be time for you to ask questions, is called The Collector and the Dealer. This is the collector, Benjamin Zucker, and I am the dealer. But we are here to tell you that no, that's not true. We are both collectors and dealers. So we will confound your um, understanding this terminology and our practices and lives. So I think we'll start, Benjamin asked me if I would go first, I think we will start by giving you a little bit of a bio of who we are and what we do and um, what we deal in and collect. Um, And then we'll proceed and we'll also talk about this collection. So um, many of you probably know that I'm a medievalist and trained as, I know nothing about anything else but the Middle Ages, so fortunately I have this job. I've been a medievalist since college, pretty much, and was interested in art even before then. So I have degrees in medieval art, and I taught at universities for many, many years. And at one point, most experts in my field, which is historic jewelry, but it's really medieval manuscript illumination, and most experts in my field outsource their expertise, and they find people like me to tell them what it is they have to sell. And so that's really how I started to go from scholar to um, dealer is I was asked to describe manuscripts for people who had them for sale. And then they asked me to find them for them, and then they asked me to help them buy them, and then they asked me to try to raise the money for them, and then they asked me to find the clients. And it was kind of like, well, I was doing all the parts of the circle, and I wanted independence, and so I did become a dealer. But I didn't stop being a media. I mean, people often say, are you an academic? Which do you like better? I mean, they're both the same, they're the same thing to me. And do you miss teaching? And I feel like, well, what's this? I mean, this is partly teaching, too. And I have these wonderful um, employees and interns and a former student sitting in the back row there. Um, so. Um, uh, 
So anyway, that's how I became a dealer and who I am. And Kristen, um, who's in charge of this podcast and works with us, and is Cynthia's student, so it's like she's my grandchild. <laughs> um, um, so Kristen said, well, are, is being a dealer and a collector the same thing? And I think we're here to talk a little about that, too. And I do collect not actually in, like you'll find out that Benjamin does deal, but not actually in historic jewelry. And I do collect, but not really in medieval manuscripts. So, um, I mean, I collect, you know, Dora Maar and art by women in the 20th century and things like that. So we're going to keep talking about collecting and dealing, but I don't want to um, hog the whole conversation, so I'm going to turn this over now to Benjamin. You can hear a little bit about who he is and that he's a collector and a dealer. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's great uh, to be in the same room with you and it's great to be in the same room with my sister, Marco, and my brother-in-law, Lenny. And so in terms of collecting uh, or dealing, I certainly was a collector before I ever thought about being a dealer. And my first memory was that my father thought it would be a good idea to collect stamps. And so I had these four fabulous diamond dealing uh, uncles and they would send me from Malaysia, from Singapore, Paris. When they would get uh, envelopes, they would send the envelopes and keep the messages and I would get all these envelopes uh, sometime I was about six, uh, my idea of a good time would be on a Sunday, I'd put all the envelopes in the tub and the stamps would float on the top and then I would gather up the stamps and my mother would be sitting at the dining room table and I would sort them out uh, and put them in loose leaf books and match them up to pictures in Scott's catalog. The idea, my mother would have endless patience. She would stay for three, four hours at a clip, and I thought she thought this was the most interesting thing in the world. But basically, it was, you know, just love. And then when I would go to the living room, I would see in a case these um, Chinese ivory objects. And my father, one by one over a period of decades, really, whenever he would go to Hong Kong, and we were in the pearl business and the stone business, as well as the feather business, he would stop off in Hong Kong and he would visit a prominent Chinese dealer who would show him some uh, ivory and then my father would bargain and then eventually he'd say, no, it's too expensive. And maybe on the second or third trip, he would get one of these objects. And they were in a case very similar to this. They had a little bit of water in it to keep you know, the ivory uh, healthy. And so the, between the stamps and between these objects that came from uh, Hong Kong, I came to think of collecting as an association with faraway countries. And as soon as I got into the gem business, I started to think, well, where did, you know, how did these diamonds, who were the first dealers in diamonds? I knew about Marco Polo. But the idea that I could form a collection of rings and then, let's say, when I was trying to sell the diamonds, and my friend Fred Clark, is really my best friend from the diamond business, had a very large group of customers all over the United States. 
and he would send his diamonds over, and he was very active in trade shows. So I would take, and he would suggest places to me, and so I would speak about what I had just bought in India, let's say a 12th century uh, ruby ring. So I had the past and the present, and I just went on kind of building a collection which was really to answer the question of how Indian diamonds specifically or colored stones started. Yeah, and that brings us to this exhibit. And I should thank um, also uh, my colleague Keegan Gepford for the beautiful installation. This exhibit is 35 diamonds, historic diamonds. I, I think you all realize they're Indian diamonds, for the most part set in European settings. The Indian diamond mines, whether they're Golconda, as people say, or somewhere in the Deccan Plateau, they dry up, they cease around 1700, and then fortunately they discover diamonds in Brazil and then South Africa comes after. So this really is historic, you know, historic Indian diamonds from the 13th century all the way up to about 1750, 1800. Benjamin has told you how he's a collector, but you know, we talked a little about scholar, collector, dealer. I mean, he's kind of a scholar, too, um, and novelist. We, we'll talk about novelists later. But this is a pedagogical collection that he's formed, and we've presented it also as a pedagogical collection, taking you through octahedral diamonds to point cut to table cut, rose and brilliant. Uh, maybe Benjamin, you want to say a little bit about forming this particular collection. Oh, and by the way, I collected postcards, not stamps. Uh -huh. But I did collect <laughs> postcards from national parks. Um, so they are everyone And who, it's the same adumbration of the far away and the magic of travel. Kind and, of. Kind and you of. travel a huge amount. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, basically the idea of having a collection. Once I started uh, and I got kind of a corpus of, let's say, 20 very fine diamond rings, and it took about 20 uh, years, I would say, and then I had the idea, well, I was, and my uncles, my four uncles had sites from De Beers, and so I went to De Beers, who was a big distributor uh, of diamonds and controlled at that time in the 70s about 85% of the world's diamonds. So I said, well, I have this collection, and why don't you show the collection in places that you sell, let's say uh, Finland or Italy? Or, and they said, oh, that's so interesting. And they said, well, could you organize the catalog? They said, oh, you know what I mean? What we'll do is we'll have the catalog, because they were great merchandisers. So they had this little catalog, and they had these wonderful rings. So the next thing I knew is they put the catalog in Finnish, and they showed the catalog uh, and the pieces in Finland. But when I see this presentation, or let's say this picture of this Venetian uh, 16th century diamond ring, it really is, makes the piece so much come alive. And whereas the De Beers catalog was about this big, this, the object is a normal size ring, uh, with glorious diamonds on it and super white color. Going backwards to De Beers, 
they didn't have that academic kind of basis to really do a wonderful catalog. And this collection in Sandra's hands has at the high point of the book, which I think is extraordinary, the fact that these are displayed, and these were displayed also at the Met. It's amazing how the lighting that Sandra has had, that Keegan organized, um, and you can see on the top of this uh, brooch uh, a greenish hue. And, but you can really see it once you look in combination with this blow up. So I think that the idea of you have pieces but they don't really sing. I mean you have to look at them uh, with a jeweler's loop and you, and you have the, the touch of it. But in the combination of the different levels of examination, whether it's exhibition, a book, and I think it's in the future, I would think that I bet Sandra will be able to organize a way of presenting this as a lesson in how diamonds were cut. So I brought these stones, uh, these rings to a certain point, but they've just gone on this voyage that has been fantastic for me. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could talk a little about the voyage and the beginning of the voyage. I mean, this collection and this project has been a couple of years, maybe two and a half years in the making. But it's not the first project that as collector we have done together because we did a project called Cycles of Life, which um, was a collection of Benjamin Zucker's historic rings, not diamonds. That was in, was five years ago? Six yeah. years ago? Five years ago. Also with a book and taking the rings through what they show about birth, what they, marriage, um, family, um, courtship, I think was in there, ending with um, rings that are memento mori, reminders of um, life's um, fragility, as it were. So we did a book for that project and it went very well and many of those rings are actually now on, um, in a collection called the Griffin Collection which is on deposit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I don't know, one thing led to another and it's like, well I have this diamond collection too. I said, well I don't know anything about diamonds. Well, you'll learn. Um, so that's a little bit about the voyage that took us to this moment in the collection. I mean, each piece is a story within a story within a story. I mean, again, looking at the piece that Sandra chose for the cover, and the cover is glorious of the book, and this ring just pops off the cover. And then when you think that, I mean, I used to be so exhausted when I would get to India because you had to go there and it took 18 hours and you got there and it was hot and you were nervous. And, but then you think about the 16th century jeweler in Venice and these diamonds were sent, I mean, like Marco Polo, but 300 years later, on boats that took years and incredible dangers. And then that diamond dealer had, must have had hundreds of octahedral crystals because the way diamonds occur in nature is through this computer generated picture of a double pyramid form. And that's the best for cutting, but they often are in different shapes. But in any case, this Venetian jeweler had some dealer that 
just managed to escape with his life halfway around the world. And then he had this incredibly cunning craftsman who made the side enameling and highlighting it by the chiseled aspect. But again, as I said before, in order to make the object sing, you really have to understand graphically. For example, in these uh, generated, again, computer photographs, if you take the uncut diamond crystal and you press it down on a wheel that's turning slowly, then you flatten out the top of the diamond and you have a table cut. But you want to know, let's say today, what the bottom of the stone, which is called a culet, what it looks like, and you can barely see it with a loop. But it turns out that one scholar named Tillander figured out from judging the reflection of the culet, you can find out uh, the size of the actual culet in the stone. So each of these objects, and it, it was amazing to me that when I fell in love with an object, and if it was really great, for example, this one with the table cut, or that one, they tended to be from collectors from 50 years before, from 100 years before, whether it was Spitzer in Paris in the 1880s uh, who had that ring, or a man named Giu from France in 1887, and their collections often were in books. So part of my uh, idea for collecting would be to try to get each book that I could get by a collector and then try to dream what I call a musée imaginaire to then get that kind of ring. So it was really an ongoing, a 40-year search, but you find along the way these treasures. And then you put them together and here they are. I think that um, it might be useful to realize, to think also about, as many of you know, I'm a manuscript dealer and people often say to me, well, medieval manuscripts and rings and jewelry are pretty far apart. And I actually don't think that's true. Um, medieval manuscripts are made of precious pigments, they're, on they're living, they're on animal skin, precious stones, they're gold, there's lots of gold, there's lapis lazuli ground up, there are many other minerals, and they're often quite small and intimate. So actually the experience of looking at, not just the materials, but the experience of looking at and studying medieval jewelry is not really unlike the experience of looking at and studying medieval rings. So, you know, it was a sort of natural transition and a way of incorporating them together in what I do as a dealer. And in terms of the colors of, let's say, uh, the Book of Kells, you see the different color variations and so forth, and then you realize that those colors often occur in gems to different degrees. So you're very, I think you could tell a palette of colors from 14th century that would be typical as opposed to a different uh, palette of colors. 
Yeah, and colors brings us to another point in this exhibit, which is that we have a colored diamond here, or colored diamonds here. I don't think they ever used ground up green diamonds in medieval manuscript illumination, but um, one of the highlights of this collection is a diamond, I put the study that the GIA did on it over there in the corner, which um, has been called the Dutch Rose and which has green diamonds or greenish yellow gold diamonds. Benjamin will talk about it. So maybe you could say something about colored diamonds. Sure, um, sure. And vis-a-vis -vis that brooch. Yeah, I mean, uh, when you look at this colored diamond on the top, as I said, it's uh, intense green. And when I first saw the brooch in a dealer's office, uh, I was stunned by the fact that in one single piece, there were a medley of colors and the green on the top was matched by a lighter green on the bottom and then you had pinkish browns and I knew from the study of jewelry history books that there was one other piece like it but it had a giant di green diamond in Dresden and from time to time there were fantastic green diamonds let's say every 10 years there might be a wonderful green diamond uh, and often a carrot size that would come up at auction. And so I thought to myself, I can't believe this is actually being offered to me. And this was one of the pieces that I didn't have the money to buy it, but I had something that the dealer wanted to uh, swap for. I swapped and I had to top it up with some money. And as soon as I got it to New York, I went to the Gemological Institute and they grade colored diamonds by the spectroscopic analysis of the diamond. And I said, this is a really beautiful green diamond, isn't it? Now a green diamond can be greenish yellow, which means that it's more yellow than green, or it can be yellowish green, which means that it's more green than yellow, or it can be greenish yellow, which means that it's equal parts green and yellow. And there's a huge difference in rarity. So the GIA said, oh, we could tell you exactly what it is if uh, you would agree to have the diamond taken out of the mounting. So this is total heresy. And, you know, I'm so happy Bob Reese is here because every step of these adventures that I've had for years in the gem world, you know, he's interested in every single written thing that I come across and he reads everything page by page. It's such an adventure story. So I said, I can't take this out of the mounting. Is there any way that you can aim the spectroscope at an angle and then tell me, would you grade it? And sure enough, they were very interested in that. And I had suggested to the Gemological Institute that they get so many treasures, you know, occasional blue diamond and wonderful works of uh, diamond history and so forth. But the dealers, if you have something valuable, as soon as they put it into the GIA, they want to take it out. But I wanted the full story on each of these objects. So I said to the GIA, why don't you have books about your exceptional pieces and convince the dealer that it'll take you, let's say, three months to do it. And it became a real honor to get an object studied in this kind of report. And the report that they issued on the Dutch Rose is here, as Sandra said. So I then thought that the top of it was reminiscent of a painting by Rembrandt. And 
Barbara and I were in Paris and we rushed to this museum, the Jacquemart, where this brooch by Rembrandt and uh, uh, Sitter, the uh, wife of the Stadtholder of Holland, there was the painting and it was a hazy version of this brooch on the top. But when you're a collector, you want to have the best. You want it to be portrayed by Vermeer. You know, there's so much wish fulfillment in it. And then you take it to a museum and they say, well, you know, you can hardly see the brooch in the painting, so it's like a cold shower. But Rembrandt did specialize in the effects of white light, the brilliance, and not like Vermeer where the object is faithfully reproduced. So I thought, well, it's, it is the brooch, but it's the way Rembrandt sees it. So when the book came out, I have this theory that it's Rembrandt, and I told Sandra, and she smiled, you know, because she's very uh, elegantly quizzical when she doesn't agree with something. So she said, oh, that's interesting. So then I went to Diana Skarsbrick, who's the greatest jewelry historian. So she thought it was a stretch. So she said in the, in the description, she said, well, the reason Ben bought this was that he felt it reminds him of Rembrandt. So my theory was in there in print. <laughs> and, you know, what do I hope? I hope that somewhere down the line, there'll be a line drawing by Rembrandt showing the brooch. So you could say the chances of that are one in a billion. But one night, in the middle of the night, about 25 years ago, I jumped out of bed. I went running into my library, and I had this vision. I had owned this wonderful Taj Mahal emerald, and I thought that Rembrandt had painted it. And I went through all my Rembrandt books. So after about an hour, Barbara comes toddling into the uh, library. She says, what are you doing? I said, I can't believe it. At that moment, I found this line drawing by Rembrandt of a hexagonal emerald, which to me looked like the Taj Mahal emerald. And it was a line drawing of uh, Shah Jahan, and it's in the Cleveland Museum of Fine Arts. So maybe we will see the brooch someday. And these objects have afterlives, long after our lives will, you know, be not here, um, that I think a lot more will be known about these objects. And you know, when you're, Benjamin's talked about when you're a collector, you want Vermeer or Rembrandt or someone to have painted your, um, your brooch or Louis XIV to have owned it so you're like walking in their steps. But one thing you want when you're a dealer is you want um, there to be sufficient material available about the objects. Of course, you commission like Diana Skarsbrick to write the book or the famous Cynthia Hahn to write a book on pendants. But one of the reasons I think why we work together and work together very well is Benjamin was very interested in finding out about his pieces. And that adds value to them, to put it, you know, bluntly. And I didn't have to go to the GIA and ask them to do a study on the green diamonds. I inherited the book with the collection um, that the GIA had already done. Or, for example, a website on 16 of the jewels that um, Courtney Stewart at the Metropolitan Museum did 
when Benjamin graciously loaned 16 of his rings to the Metropolitan Museum. So Benjamin's rings came with a lot of preparation that he himself was interested in undertaking and that I acquired, as it were, with the collection. And I think that it's not common to have that, we're not so dissimilar, it's not common to have that similar perspective between a collector and a dealer. Maybe Bill, you and I had a similar perspective too. Um, again, Bill Vokley is a collector of, um, we called his collection, Holy Hoaxes, and a curator at the Morgan who formed a private collection. We did a project together. Again, we had a rapport that relates to our similar approaches to objects. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, again, 35 years ago, I think, um, I was in the Morgan Library and I saw a jewel book cover and on the bottom it said, Precious and Colored Stones. And so I went back to the office and I wrote the head of the Morgan Library saying, um, I'm a graduate gemologist and I would love to be able to examine each stone on this 11th century manuscript or this 12th century manuscript. I get back this letter like in five days and they say, oh, we would love you to come. Then I went into total panic because, you know, to test each stone and I, I'm a gemologist. You want to take them out of the binding. <laughs> I want to take them out of the binding. So, you know, and, you know, I took the... GIA course with Margot, and uh, she got me through, and, but you know, it's a tough slog. So I went to the Gemological Institute and I said, would you be interested to examine each of the stones in this jewel binding? So they said, oh, that sounds like a very interesting project. We go over to the Morgan, and there's Bill Vokley, and he welcomes us, you know, like just it's the biggest honor for the Morgan Library to have us. And I had been seeing the Gutenberg Bible, and I think he has the manuscript of Alice in Wonderland. I mean, all these treasures. Takes us up, and then he says very quietly, this is Mr. Morgan's study. And he puts the, and the manuscript is on the table, and the lights are dim, because Bill really is quite theatrical what he wants to be, and it's pretty dark. And here's these stones, and the uh, two uh, gemologists, Tom Moses and Bob Crowningshield, are from, they brought their portable spectroscope and uh, the Morgan had a uh, swivel microscope that you could spin, you could lean over the book. And so I think we went back maybe 12 times. I mean, died and gone to heaven. The idea that, oh, and then Bill says, oh, I want to show you the telegram when J.P. Morgan was bidding on it and it's his code. And he made the whole experience of this manuscript come alive. And we were able to see what stones had been replaced and so forth. So in the collecting and studying of jewels, this opened up so many doors to me, I mean, ones that I never could have imagined uh, I would encounter. Yeah, um, more connections between manuscripts, um, precious stones, and, and jewelry as well. Um, we want to give you a chance to ask questions, and, but I thought I might end. We, we've talked about the journey of getting here to this collection, this fabulous collection of diamonds, which will have their own journey, I think. We'll see 
where they go. We might be collectors and dealers, but in the end, we're only custodians of these objects which have their own life. But this project took um, two and a half years, and we have another idea. So I'm just gonna end by saying stay tuned. This is probably not the end of the collector and the dealer relationship. So um, if you have questions um, for either of us, um, but especially for Benjamin, who's the star. Um, just following up on one of the last statements you just made, uh, what, was, what were some of the telltale signs of the placed stones in this um, you know, book cover finding? Uh, of the replaced stones? Well, um, just as one would think is that the prongs had been slightly tampered with, and then the bigger the stone, the more likely it was that it had been taken out, uh, you know, as the abbey uh, grew on hard times, and then they sold that, or maybe it was stolen, and then another one was put in. And now, mind you, these stones were uh, reminiscent and emblematic of the holy city of Jerusalem. So these book covers were an iconic object, but they were immensely valuable. And one of the very stunning things about each of these rings is that most of the time, if you had a wonderful diamond in a ring in the 16th century, by the 17th century it had been taken out it had been modernized, and then in the 18th century, so there was such, there have been such huge losses of very fine rings with fine stones in them. And then occasionally, you knew that, let's say, a large, what had been a very indifferent sapphire in the uh, book cover, you could be pretty sure that the original was a wonderful star sapphire from Ceylon. Oh, but they would sometimes be replaced with the equivalent stone, just a lesser part. I'm never afraid to make a bold leap, you know, because I'm basically a novelist. And then, you know, other people say, well, how do you know that? But, you know. Bill. Well, I just want to point out for this group, I'm sure you'll be interested to know that before Morgan uh, collected his magnificent manuscripts, he was, in fact, a gem collector. Correct. Uh, and this is why, at the Museum of Natural History, which he co-founded with Theodore Roosevelt, you have the memorial the Morgan Memorial Hall of Gems because he donated those collections. And that's where the big jewelry heist was. Right, and he was the one that uh, donated the famous uh, star sapphire, the biggest one, 560 carats or something like that. Uh, and one of the great revelations to me, thanks to you and your team, I had described these blue beads on the cover of our most fabulous manuscript of the ninth century as glass beads, and then you came up and your team that these were in fact star sapphires. Right. So my whole uh, approach to the cover was greatly augmented because there are many on the cover as well as beautiful emeralds. So for someone you know, to have had such a quantity of these matching stones was incredible and of course spoke a very high patronage. It's a great topic for someone to actually take treasure bindings and to do a fuller, you know, worldwide study of extant treasure bindings. Um, is someone doing that? No. A student of yours, your yeah, next, next, next PhD student. You had a question too. Uh, before, before you ask, Furness, two months into coming into the business, a person brought up this 98 carat star sapphire, which was incredibly blue, 
to the office. So my dad, who'd never went beyond the fourth grade, I look at this stone, I say, Dad, this is better than the Star of India. So he says, what's the Star of India? So I said, it's in the American Museum of Natural History. I said, you know, if we were really smart, what we would do is we would take it up and show it to the museum and, you know, maybe they would display it. And, you know, it would be alongside J.P. Morgan's gift of, you know. And so my father, the measure of the man, he said, oh, that sounds like a great idea. Why don't you call him right now? So I got the name of the head of the uh, uh, Gem Hall and uh, Vincent Manson. And I called him up and I said, you know, uh, I have a star of sapphire that's actually bluer than the star of India. And I was wondering if I could come up and uh, show it to you. And there's this pause on the phone. And I suddenly realize he thinks I'm a nut. So I say, the first thing that could come to my mind is I said, yes, and you know, before uh, going into the gem business, um, I went to Harvard Law School, which was so insane to say. So he says, he's, he says to me, oh, he says, um, well, okay. He says, when would you like to come up? So I said, can I come up now? So he says, yeah. I said, you know, I used to run high school track. I said, I could be up in no time. By this time, the guy was, you know, he says, I'll meet you in the gem hall, because he didn't want me to go in his office. So I go up to the museum. I got the Star Sapphire, of course, in my pocket. And there's, the Lord helps, there's this high school, uh, grade school class. And there's like six kids. So I whip the stone out of my pocket, and I have my little flashlight. And I say to the, the, one of the kids, which do you think is bluer, this star sapphire or the star of India? So the kid says, oh, mister, he says, your stone's much bluer. Then this other kid says, how'd you get the stone out of the case? So <laughs> at this point, this Vincent Manson comes over and he sees the two kids and he sees the star sapphire. He couldn't believe the whole thing. So he <laughs> takes me into his office and he says, I know why you're here. I said, why is that? He says, you want to, you, I, said, I said, I'd like to display the stone. He says, you want to display it and then you want to sell it. So I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm happy to leave it here. And my father said, don't talk about selling. I said, I don't want to sell it. So he says, oh, you know. So in the end, I gave him, loaned him the stone. I put it on consignment. And then my father said to me, don't call the museum guy. And months went by. He said, Let, wait for him to call you. And then finally, he did call, and I went up there. And uh, it was wonderful to stay there for like 15 years. Vern? The amassing of your collection and the research obviously is a labor of love. So my question is, when it's not here and visible, where do you house it? How often do you get to look at it? It's not like a piece of art on the wall. What right. Do you do? It was uh, pieces were at the Walters for, in Baltimore for many years. Um, then I had pieces in my safe. But primarily, one of the great things is people wouldn't see it. So my dream was, gee, if I could only have the Met, for example, show it. Because the Walters has had a rotating uh, display. But the, the Met is really... Uh, the mecca of, in a certain sense, museums, to mix a metaphor. Then when they decided that they would show it, and it took, I would say, five years before they, they said, oh yeah, we'll do this. But, you know, museums grind exceeding slowly. And so it took 
really a long time. And it was at Houston, too, before and it was that. At Houston, bef right. Between the Walters and the Matt. Right, mm -hmm. right. And some. Uh, in the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. And then it was in the Peabody, because Yale was, the Yale University was founded by Elihu Yale, who made his fortune in the diamond trade. So I had gone to Yale, and you know, this idea that I was somehow connected four centuries before. I mean, mind you, I was born on the day F. Scott Fitzgerald died. So my wife, Barbara's psychotherapist, says, don't dwell on that too much, you know. <laughs> so, but I'm convinced that, you know, poor Scott died in the middle of his life, and uh, I'm here to finish his novels, you know. But we, we all have our uh, conceits. So, uh, yeah, so when I found that, I, 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 I went to Thames and Hudson. I said I could write a book about Elihu Yale as a diamond trader, and I would write it with Diana Scarisbrick. And that was one of the really exciting things that I've been able to do. Other questions or comments? Do you, as a collector, um, do you ever feel your collection is confused? Or like you always hunt for something new? Ooh, I, I would answer that, but I would ask you that first, okay? In other words, when you, you've, you've gotten so many beautiful manuscripts, and do you ever feel? I feel there's always something around the corner the next day. Um, I, I don't know that a collection is ever like totally complete. I think most curators would say that too. I think dealers would say that. I think most collectors would say that. It's not like you're checking off the box and you get to box number 35 and it's like, okay, done. But at some point, you do decide, as Benjamin did, that you know it's time to wrap this up. It's time for the collection to have another home, to have it another life. Um, just as, you know, I always feel, people always say to me, oh, aren't you upset that you have to sell this ring or this manuscript? And it's like, no, not at all. I love it that they're going to a new home and someone else and something else will come in the door. And I think probably you feel that too, that, you know, you might get another, you know, Dutch rose or well, life I is long. We all hope. <laughs> I, I know exactly what I'm dreaming of, and I don't cross against the light, so I'm hoping you know, I'll have enough time to find it. I wrote uh, the first novel, Blue, and I had the star sapphire on the cover. And then I wrote Green, and it uh, was about the Taj Mahal emerald. And then I wrote White, and there was a beautiful Golconda necklace on it. And so now I'm writing Red. So I'm dreaming of some thing like a ruby, but then I thought the other day, well, maybe it's that uh, this ring has a little ruby on the side of it. Um, and this single piece, because the whole idea of diamonds is the light hits the diamond, it bounces around within the stone, and it comes back white. But there's a certain angle that it also splits the white light into prismatic colors. Then you see the colors of the rainbow, which to me is very spiritually significant and also tremendously aesthetically significant. So I'm not sure, maybe it's an engraved spinel, but these things really came to me just by, I mean, happenstance almost. 
uh, even though I dreamed of them coming to me. So uh, I think it'll be I'm I think it'll be a red stone. Bob. Many years ago, you gave a lecture at at the Yale Club, I believe, and during the lecture, you said that owning a piece of art or a piece of jewelry is very different than going to look at it in a museum. And you got me crazy. <laughs> and I started collecting, and it became insane because I loved, and there was a show at the Modern where they had Miro's constellations. And they took one entire room, and there were 23 or 22 constellations, and they framed them and had them around the room. And it was beautiful. So I went home and took out my constellations and put them around my room. And I said, this is better than, and it's all because of you. So I have a house full of things I've collected. Poor Fern. And Poor Fern. No, but the point is, I don't, it, it escapes me because some of them I wouldn't want to part with. But again, you're guilty of creating this monster for us. <laughs> I, Thank I, you, Benny. I mean, it's such a wonderful dialogue we've had over the years because by day, you have patients who are really your friends and you know so much about them and you give advice. And then on the weekends, you can examine your art objects. And it's, I mean, and really the fun of the collecting is the people you meet. And so these art objects really are, in so many ways, a union of friendship and, and thought. Well, the story goes way beyond the original object. Right. I mean, what you've educated me to I mean, I must have 15 books in my office that you gave me, yeah. from Blotsov to this to that, and it's been a journey, really. It has nothing to do with the original object, just spending time with you. I think we'll close with this idea that, in fact, the objects are a way of bringing people together, and I've met many of you two, three, four times during this um, uh, event, and I hope I'll see you all again. I, I just want to make one more observation that brings uh, collecting manuscripts and diamonds together. And that is that uh, LSU Yale has the distinction of having given the first illuminated manuscript in this country to an institution of which the spectrum of the minus of opciones. So he apparently collected medieval manuscripts as well. Fantastic. Thank you. Here. Manuscripts meet diamonds. This has been a Les Enlumineurs podcast. We are exhibiting next at Fine Arts Paris between November 13th and 17th in the Carousel du Louvre. I'll see you there. You can reach us online through our website, lesenlumineurs.com, or through Twitter and Instagram at Les Enlumineurs. You are always welcome to visit one of our galleries in New York, Chicago, or Paris during our exhibitions or to make an appointment with one of our specialists. Thanks for listening. <laughs>